You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he, had taught, or, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. That's John the Baptist. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. And when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, use me as an instrument this evening um, to to teach your people here at Revolution Church your truth. Um, Prepare our hearts um, that that we would be attentive um, to what your word has to say, um, that we would truly mull over these things. Um, Holy Spirit, prick our hearts, um, soften our hearts so that we can receive the truth. And if there are any unbelievers here, um, God, I pray that, that what it really means to be a disciple of Christ would be um, made known to them and that they would, they would look to Jesus for their salvation and begin a life of following him. The Holy Spirit, please do your work because if you don't, then I'm just up here talking, and no one's life will be changed. So Holy Spirit, do a sovereign work of grace in the lives of the people here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so given the context, right, given the context that we gave you at the beginning before we read the passage and the actual passage itself, we can see a few things, right? I like to do a recap. I don't know if you guys are learners like me. Um, if, if someone's reading something aloud to me, I, I don't get it too well. I need to usually reread something multiple times by myself and think about it. So I'm just going to give you like the high points of everything we talked about and what we just read. Just, if you're like me at all, you're welcome. If you're not, deal with it. Um, but given the context we're in, we see a few things. The first one is Aquila and Priscilla meet Paul and certainly learn from Paul for a year and a half. All right, the second thing we see is then Apollos comes in on the scene, right? And he, he's from Alexandria, um, and what's good to know about Apollos being from Alexandria, um, you guys have ever heard of the Alexandrian Library in Egypt back in the, Yeah, like largest library in the world, um, like incredibly, uh, education was taken seriously, right, if you were from Alexandria. Um, one of the most famous Jewish um, teachers or philosophers um, around Jesus' day named Philo. He was from Alexandria. He was teaching people the scriptures back then. Um, he was not a Christian. He was a Jew. Um, but Apollos is from there, right? So there's a really good chance that Apollos may have learned from Philo um, or someone who had been taught by Philo himself. Um, he's incredibly smart, right? Think of Apollos as like the equivalent of a scholar back then. Um, you know, the Bible records we just read that Apollos was eloquent, so he was a very good speaker. There are actually some scholars that would argue that Apollos was actually a better public speaker than the Apostle Paul, right? Paul himself says that he wasn't a very good uh, public speaker, but that, like, he preached with power from the word. Um, but the Bible says that Apollos is actually easy to listen to, right? So think someone like Matt Chandler. It's, like, a lot easier to listen to than me. That's Apollos, right? And then it says that he was mighty in the scriptures, right? Which means he loves the Bible, 
Right? Apollos loves the Bible. He studies the scriptures. Um, mighty in the scriptures is what the King James says. I know it says like he knows the scriptures well. I don't remember what the NLT says, but he's mighty in the scriptures. He loves the Bible. He knows how to reason from scripture. The Bible is incredibly important to Apollos. And then we see Apollos is teaching about Jesus. Right? And the things that he's saying about Jesus are accurate. We're not exactly sure what he was teaching about Jesus, but whatever it was, it was right, and it was in line with what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. Keep in mind, the New Testament has not been written yet at this point. This is around 52, 53 AD. Um, But whatever Apollos is teaching, it's basically the same thing that John the Baptist taught, right? Which would be, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, repent of your sins, right? That's that's, that's about the basics of, of what John the Baptist taught. Look to Jesus He's the Messiah. Repent of your sins. So we know that that's, at least, that's what Apollos is teaching. Um, But there's something missing in Apollos' teaching. Whatever he's saying, it's accurate, but there's something missing. So Aquila and Priscilla take Apollos aside, right? They take him in private, and they teach him the way of God more accurately. So whatever was deficient in Apollos' teaching, they take him to the side and they teach him. And then Apollos, after receiving that good teaching, goes on to Corinth and helps the believers there. And the reason why we can say he received that teaching um, is because then he gets a letter of recommendation from the, from the church in Ephesus saying uh, to the church in Corinth, accept Apollos, right? Accept him. He's a good teacher. He'll help you out, right? So taking all that together, there's a few points that I want to talk about. Um, but one of them, I think, is the unifying thought to this whole passage. And maybe you won't see it, but it stuck out to me incredibly. And that's this. Doctrine matters, Doctrine matters. Now, I know that that's like a church word. I know sometimes we speak Christianese up here. Um, Like, I I get that. Whenever I say doctrine, what I mean is is this. The things that we believe about God, about sin, about mankind, about salvation, about holiness, which is just living in a way that pleases the Lord, about morality, right? Anything that Christians believe as it is taught in the Bible. That's what doctrine is, right? So it's not like this crazy, like, theological word. You already knew what it was. Maybe you just didn't know what the word was for it. That's doctrine. Anything we believe as it is taught in the scriptures. Now, doctrine matters for for this reason. What the Bible teaches us changes us what we believe, or changes in us what we believe. Um, and, And whatever we believe, and you've heard me say this a lot, whatever we believe leads to a change in our hearts, right? Which leads to a change in our lives. For example, I believe in gravity. So I'm not going to walk off the top of Massey Hall and expect nothing bad to happen to me, right? Like, beliefs change what, um, what we do. They change our lives. So doctrine, then, whatever the Bible teaches that's going to shape what we believe, is supremely important because it's really, really going to change how we live our lives. Um, now, whenever I say doctrine mattered, um, it mattered to all the people uh, listed, or that we talked about. It mattered to Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla. It mattered to Apollos, right? Um, And I want to give you a few examples of how much doctrine mattered to the Apostle Paul. He wrote about it all the time. And we're going to use the English Standard Version here. Um, It's a little bit better translation sometimes. Uh, In Titus, right, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he says this about pastors, right? So this is a requirement if someone's going to teach the church. He said, he, the pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In Titus 2.1, he's saying, in contrast to a false teacher, he says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Right? And in 2 Timothy uh, 4, 1 and 2, this is one of Paul's last letters, I believe. 
He says this to Timothy, who is a pastor. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? Preach the word. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. False teachers don't care about doctrine. But as for you, Titus, you will teach what accords with sound doctrine. You will teach people how to live in, in step with what the scriptures teach. But it's not just Paul. We see Peter in, in his letters. He talks about false teachers coming up and how you should stay away from them because they teach false doctrine. We see Jesus rebukes this group of false teachers called the Sadducees because they denied that people would come back from the dead. Right? They deny the bodily resurrection. And he says, you're ignorant of the scriptures and the power of God. Right? So like Jesus rebukes people with false doctrine. What I'm saying is all of God's people care about doctrine. It's not just Paul and Peter and Jesus. Um, we see, again, in this passage, Aquila and Priscilla cared about doctrine. Right? They cared enough to teach Apollos. Did they not? Like Maybe you didn't catch that, but they took him aside and they instructed him. They cared. They said, we want this brother to know what the Bible teaches in in the most accurate, full way that we possibly can. So we're going to inconvenience ourselves and potentially offend this brother to take him off to the side and teach him. And we see Apollos cared about doctrine. He's mighty in the scriptures. He taught accurately. And then after speaking with Aquila and Priscilla, he accepted sound, solid biblical teaching from them. What I'm getting at is God's people care about what God has said. Right? We don't call the Bible the Word of God just because that's like a cute thing that you can put on t-shirts. Right? Like we actually believe that like these are the things that God wants us to know. These are the things that He has spoken through prophets. These are the things that He has revealed about Himself. So God's people care about what God has said because we know the power of the Word of God. It changes hearts. It changes lives. No human argument can change people's hearts, but the scriptures and the scriptures alone are what's going to change us into the people that God wants us to be. It is the scripture and scripture alone and and, and the accurately taught scriptures are the only thing that's going to save us because they tell us what to believe about ourselves and about Jesus being the substitution in our place for our sin. So again, doctrine changes our hearts and it, it changes our lives. And I'll just give you an example. If we believe the biblical doctrine that says people suck, Right? Like if I can just say that just as low level as I can. Right? Human beings are wicked. They're sinful. They're under the wrath of God. Human beings are not naturally good. Right? You guys are, I'm sure you've heard that like on the TV and like Facebook, like BuzzFeed videos. People are just naturally good. No, they're not. Not according to the Bible. It says everyone has turned away from God and are hostile towards God and want nothing to do with Him and wouldn't go to Him if they had the opportunity. If we believe that about human beings because we're believing what the Bible says, sound doctrine then that's going to change our perspective on human beings, right? That only God is going to change their heart, and I need to tell them the gospel because God's not just going to give them a pass into heaven because they're hostile against him and his wrath abides on them. You see, that's just one example of how doctrine actually will affect how we live, right? If we believe people are sinners and deserve to go to hell, then we want to tell them the gospel, right? But apart from the Bible, where are we going to come up with that belief? You're not. Doctrine changes how we live. Right? So I say that because I don't want you guys to buy into this, uh, and I, I despise this, it makes me want to vomit. <laughs> it's like this, this saying where I've heard this a lot. I don't care about theology or doctrine. I just love Jesus. Right? I feel like Daniel Tosh up here. Right? Like, like, I, like I don't care about like, doctrine. I just love Jesus. I love Jesus is a doctrinal statement. Think about that for a second. 
Because it implies some things. Why do you love Jesus? Well, you know, because he died in my place for my sin and was raised from the dead. And because he lives, I will live with him and inherit eternal blessedness in the presence of God for all of eternity. Okay. Do you realize what you just said? Right? Like, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, the fact that Jesus is coming back to judge believers and unbelievers, sending unbelievers to eternal damnation and believers into eternal blessedness, the fact that Jesus is coming back to fix the world and everything that's wrong in it, all of that is doctrine. All of that is doctrine. Like, it just, it matters. I can't impress on that, I can't impress that onto you enough. Everything that we believe about Jesus, everything, you can't think about God without having to think about doctrine. It's just, is your doctrine sound? Is your doctrine biblical? Doctrine matters because it teaches us how to be saved. It teaches us how to avoid the wrath of God. It warns us of the wrath of God to come. It shows us how we're to live in light of God's grace to us. But all that said, some doctrine is more important than others. Right here at Revolution, we've adopted this philosophy of open-handed versus, uh, sorry, open-handed versus closed-handed issues. Um, some examples of that would be, you know, uh, did God predestine all events that ever happen, or you know, uh, does man have complete autonomous free will? Right, that's a debate within the church for about five hundred, actually seventeen hundred years. Uh, if you go back to Saint Augustine, um, so like that's an open-handed thing. It's not a salvation issue. That's important. Right? Should we baptize only, um, only people who profess faith in Jesus? Um, or can we baptize children as well? That's not a salvation issue. That's an open-handed thing. Uh, the close-handed things are things that directly affect the gospel. And that if you mess with these things, you no longer have Christianity. Like the inerrancy of Scripture, the fact that Jesus was sinless, that Jesus died in our place for our sin, that he was raised from the dead, that he's going to judge, that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Right? If you mess with the close-handed things, we're going to fight you. That's why they make a fist. I'm kidding. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm a complete wuss, and I would not fight anybody. And all that aside, Jesus says not to, so it really shouldn't matter about my physical prowess. Um, (laughs) Anyway, but okay, even with the open-handed and closed-handed thing, um, it all does matter, though. I'm not here to say only the gospel and gospel-centric doctrine matters, and everything else is meh. It all matters, because God has given it to us so that we can know Him and please Him and be in fellowship with Him. Right? So everything that the scripture teaches is important. Right? And Christians, true Christians, want to have a sound belief of God, man, sin, salvation, holiness, all of that, because we love God. What he says is important to us. We want to please him. We want to believe the right things about him. Right? But we see this care for sound doctrine. Right? Now that we, I've, I've gotten on my hobby horse about doctrine, I love it. Read theology. Just read the Bible and read theological books, please. I'll, and just for the record, just a little sidebar. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail too far. Like, if you don't know how to study the Bible, or you don't have very many resources, because you either don't know what to buy, or you just don't have the money um, to, to get a bunch of resources, please let me or anyone that's going to be on this stage know. Like, we buy study Bibles for people at this church. Like, we help get you the resources so that you can learn sound doctrine, right? We take it very seriously here. Please, come see one of us if we can help you in any way with that. But anyway, we see this care for sound doctrine lead Aquila and Priscilla to go to Apollos and explain the way of God more accurately. All right, so like we talked about, something is deficient in Apollos' teaching. We don't know what that was exactly. Um, Here are some possibilities. Um, Maybe, and this seems kind of far-fetched to me, but some scholars will say this, maybe um, Apollos didn't know that Jesus had died and come back from the dead. 
which seems a little bit far-fetched to me. Or maybe, they, maybe he knew he died, but he didn't know Jesus had come back from the dead. Or maybe he didn't know that Jesus had ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Maybe he knew Jesus was the Messiah, but didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God. Maybe he knew Jesus died for his people, but didn't really understand how that saved anybody, right? So, like, there's, there's something, right? Or, or maybe he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right, that we, talk, what we see talked about in Acts a lot, but he only knew of the baptism of John for repentance. Or maybe he didn't know that, uh, that we're to be baptized in the name of Jesus whenever we come to faith. We could keep going. I could go on forever with this stuff, but you see the point. We're not sure, but those are all possibilities. Um, but in spite of, of whatever was deficient in his teaching, everything Apollos taught about Jesus, everything he did say about Jesus was accurate. But he was missing something, and it was out of ignorance. It wasn't out of, he was just ignoring a, a truth about Christ. He just didn't know, right? And then I see this. This is really cool. In an act of love for God's people, right, and a huge act of grace towards Apollos, we see Aquila and Priscilla take him in private and teach him. Right? Now, I would argue this. I don't think that this was a one-time event. Right? I don't think that this was like, I was talking to Steve uh, on the phone about this on Saturday. I don't think that this was like, hey, come over and eat dinner like one time with me, and we're going to explain how Jesus' death actually paid for people's sin. Right? That's like a four-dinner minimum, right? or like a really long lunch at least. Right? Like, this, isn't like, this isn't like just a one-time thing, I would argue. This is probably multiple conversations that they had with Apollos over time. Right? Um, so... That being said, I think that Aquila and Priscilla began to disciple Apollos, right? Even if it was just a one-time meeting, it was still an act of discipling, right? So what does it mean to disciple, right? So again, if this is like Christianese to you, we're going to try to fix that. Um, disciple is a noun and a verb, right? A noun is someone who follows, like a noun disciple, like I am a disciple. It means I, I try to follow Jesus in all things. I, I want to think like he thought. I want to do the things that he did. I want to eat like him. I want to talk like him, right? In every single respect that I can, I want to be just like the teacher, right? I want to be just like Jesus Christ, right? So that's the noun, but then there's a verb for disciple. Um, that's, to, that's to teach a fellow believer, right? discipleship, to teach a fellow believer, to come alongside a believer, to help them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to look at the scriptures together, to really intimately get to know another person on a deep level so that you can encourage them towards faithfulness in Christ, right? If I could sum it up in this, uh, uh, people meeting together for discipleship, the, the one who's doing the discipling says this essentially, imitate me in all the ways that I imitate Christ, Right? And believe what I say, if the Bible says it as well. Right? That's what discipling looks like. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus, and believe what I say, if you see it in the scriptures as well. Right? So discipling usually looks like this. Um, you're going to see a more mature believer team up with a weaker believer. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. By weaker, I mean uh, a newer believer, right? or someone who, who isn't particularly knowledgeable about scripture. Um, or is it doesn't have a, a good grasp on theology, maybe, of uh, just the things of God that we see in the Bible. So you're going to see a more mature, more knowledgeable, probably been on the road a little bit longer, uh, with a believer team up with someone who's newer. Or maybe they've been a Christian for a long time, and they've just not been taught a whole lot, right? So just know this, age has nothing to do with spiritual maturity, right? I know some Christians in their 70s that are essentially newborn Christians because no one's ever taught them anything. Um, but what they do is the more mature one will teach what they know. Right, again, get involved in that person's life. Listen to them. Like, 
want to know what's going on. How can I be praying for you? Oh, you got a problem going on in your life? Well, let's see, does, do the scriptures address it? Let's tackle this thing biblically. And they encourage the younger Christian in the faith. Or discipleship can look like this, right? Being discipled can look like this, which is my case, right? This is, this is kind of how it works out for me. Um, where you see believers, you know, two or more, whatever, um, believers who are roughly the same in spiritual maturity, um, and you see them coming, coming alongside each other, um, where there's not like necessarily one person that is the discipler and someone else is the disciplee. Um, but you see, you know, again, like a bunch of equals pretty much in spiritual maturity coming together and filling up what's lacking in each other. Right? Like Stephen tends to be a more compassionate man than I am. Right? So like if, uh, if I'm talking to him about how my week's going and I get really upset, he's the one calling me to the table. They're like, hey, man, like Jesus says to like love your enemies. You're being a jerk, right? It's like you need to be compassionate towards people um, in the East End that you might be frustrated with right now. Like he's usually the one that's going to fill up what I'm lacking in there. And then I'm just smarter than Stephen, right? So whenever Stephen doesn't understand something in the Bible, here I am to fill up that weakness. Uh, I'm kidding. Stephen's a smart guy. (laughs) I love you. Um, Right? But again, filling up what's lacking in the other believer, um, confessing sin, sharing what they learn together, that kind of a thing. Um, so those are, those are the two kind of ways that I see discipling going down. Um, and know this too, discipling doesn't have to be formal, right? It doesn't have to be formal. These are dinners, phone calls, texts, like coffee, um, you know, whatever. Just being involved with another believer for the purpose of helping one another grow in faithfulness to Jesus. That's what I mean by they discipled Apollos. They wanted to encourage him in the faith. And really, whenever we are actively involved in, in discipling one another, this is really us just living out the Great Commission, right? Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? So we are called to make disciples there. Right? Therefore, go and make disciples. A lot of time the church gets this backwards. Uh, they think, you know, we're to make converts. Right? And it'd be like, okay, like you pray to prayer or whatever, and like you believe the gospel. Have a great day. Right? I'll see you every Sunday right now, maybe occasionally on Wednesday if you're a more traditional church. Have a great time. You're on your own, brother. Right? And, like, and that tends to be, at least that's kind of the experience that I have. There wasn't a lot of discipleship growing up. Um, in, in a lot of churches, right? But Jesus is calling us to make disciples, right? Pushing one another toward honoring Jesus, right? Teach them to obey all the commands I have given you. And Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments, right? So we're just trying to push one another in loving Jesus. And we do that by looking at scripture together and then pushing each other towards obedience. So again, doctrine matters. You see how this is a uniting point. Doctrine matters. So all that to say, before we go on, if you're a less mature believer and you're not being discipled, seek someone out. And don't just seek out someone who's smart, right? Seek out someone that you respect. And when I say, and you should res- be respecting this person because you can see in their lives, right? Not just the things that they say, but you can see their lives and their knowledge reflecting what the Bible teaches. You can see this person is practicing what they preach. Right, that's what we should respect in other believers. So if you're a weaker, newer believer, seek someone out like that. Um, other side of the coin, if you're a more mature believer, we can see in Matthew 28, you have a biblical mandate to seek out people to disciple. So do it. 
right? Do it. If you're a more mature believer, if you know, if you've got some time under your belt, um, you've been through some stuff, maybe not a ton, but some, right? You have some understanding of Scripture uh, that's more than, than a beginner. Seek someone out, right? Impart whatever knowledge you have into them because we can genuinely help one another grow. We can actually learn together, right? And I say together because you don't have to have a Ph.D. in theology to disciple someone. You can learn together. You can grow together. And this is actually why we have small groups at Rev, right? This is why we have small groups at Rev. This is why we encourage people to meet with one another privately, not just here, um, on a regular basis, right? And just a side note, my small group is a, is a, a huge encouragement to me, right? Um, both of them, actually. The one, that, the one that meets here at 5 uh, p.m. on Sundays and the one that, that I help lead on Wednesdays at 7 um, Having people that I can admit my sin to, that I know love me, and they're not going to judge me, and I don't mean that they're not going to call me out on my sin and take me to the scriptures and tell me to repent, because that's a huge grace from God if we have men and women in our lives that are willing to do that to us. But having someone that I can, some people that I can admit sin to, that I know that will pray for me, that I can pray with, that I can learn from, right? That is invaluable. Right? My small group actually um, Wednesday we've been pushing each other towards evangelism, right? And we're making each other very uncomfortable about it, too. Like, hey, man, how's it going? Right? Like, did you talk to Steve? Did you talk to that guy? No, you didn't? Why, you wuss? Right? Like, we kind of make fun of each other a little bit. But we're really, we're pushing one another to know Christ and actually follow him. And it's, and it's good. So if you're not in a small group, I'm not just saying this to try to get numbers. We don't have any, like, attendance for small groups. Like, get involved is incredibly important. Um, and we push those things here at Rev because we know that discipling and biblical instruction results in holy lives for the Lord and they build a legitimate community of believers, right? But getting back to the text, right? Now I've, I've went off for a while. Paul, like we said in the beginning, he must have discipled Aquila and Priscilla. And then what did they do? As a result of their being discipled, they sought to help Apollos grow too. Right? And I want to point something out about the heart of Aquila and Priscilla. They loved Apollos. They, it, it's, it's love for someone that will cause you to take them off to the side and say, hey, man, like you're in error, which I know I understand Apollos, wasn't, he, he wasn't in error in anything he was teaching. But it, just for the record, it's a loving person that will take someone off to the side and say, hey, man, you're messing this up, or what you believe is inaccurate according to the scriptures, or I see this inconsistency in your life and the fact that you claim to follow Jesus. That takes a loving heart. It's not a hateful person, although some people use that as an opportunity to be hateful, and I apologize if you've ever had to deal with that from people who say that they follow Christ. Um, but they loved Apollos, and this is evidenced in the fact that they wanted to teach him. They didn't just want to teach him to say, yeah, I taught that guy from Alexandria some stuff, right? They, they wanted to see him grow. They wanted to see him be faithful to the message about Jesus that the, that the Apostle Paul was preaching. They wanted him to grow in his knowledge and grow in his faithfulness, Right? I think that's because the heart that has been changed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ desires to be gracious. We've been changed by grace. We want to be gracious and help others, right? So it's just, I hope this hurts because it hurt me, right? I hope I'm not alone on this one. Like, so whenever we see a believer in error, right, whether it be a moral error, right, that someone's living and there's, there's some kind of sin in their life, if we see a believer in a moral error or a doctrinal error, Right? That, that they believe something foolish that's not in the Bible, we can either be smug or we can help them. And this hurts me real bad. Right? Anyone else ever see? And maybe it's at another church. 
Right? Or maybe it's someone in your small group who says something that's just not quite lining up with Scripture. Or maybe it's a, you hear of another preacher in, in, in the area. Um, this, is, this is for me, personally. You hear of another preacher in the area saying something foolish that just contradicts Scripture. We can be smug or we can help. Right? We can think, man, that dude needs to get it together. Right? And I know that this is me a lot. I'm just, I'm just trying to, to be as transparent as I can, and I'm not condoning this or trying to make light of it or anything. But we can say they need to get it together. They need to pray harder. They need to study harder. They need to fight their sin harder and just overcome it. And in doing that, we're actually acting like the Pharisees who Jesus says they refuse to lift a finger to aid or teach anybody. So we can be like Pharisees and be smug, or we can be gracious and compassionate like the Lord Jesus and teach them. The Bible says that Jesus looked out on, on this crowd and he said, and he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were ignorant. They needed someone to help them. Right? We see the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Right? We see Philip go up to him and he's got, the, the eunuch has this scroll and it's Isaiah. And he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I without a teacher? And Philip then, take, in, in grace and compassion towards the Ethiopian eunuch, says, let me teach you then. He doesn't smugly say, idiot. Right? You can read Hebrew, but apparently you don't understand what it means. No, he says, like, I want to help you. Right? That was kind of funny. All right. But notice that Aquila and Priscilla, too, this was, this was crazy for me, and this hurt me so bad. They didn't denounce Apollos as an idiot or a fool, did they? They're in the synagogue. They would have had an opportunity to say, this cat's dumb, right? He has no idea what he's talking about. His doctrine is not full as it should be. They didn't do that. They didn't leave him where he was. They lovingly took him in private and helped him grow. Right? Which is what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother or sister in sin, you who are spiritual should humbly and graciously go to them. Right? This is what we see. Even though I understand Apollos wasn't in sin, you, you see I'm making some, some lines here. Um, but they took him in private and helped him grow. And I, I was just thinking this week, is that not what Jesus Christ does for me? Does he cast me out and call me an idiot and a fool? Maybe, but usually it's, uh, it's to route me into repentance. Like, David, how foolish is this that you're doing? He's patient with me. By the Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit, he, he aids me in understanding Scripture and, and, and calling me back to the Bible. This is what Jesus does, and he's patient with us. He doesn't leave us where we're at. He constantly says, come on, get back up. Let's keep doing this. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. How could we not do the same for other people? whenever we see them in ignorance or whether we see them in, in a moral error. Right, so, so we've seen that what Scripture teaches matters and that it leads to discipleship and then that leads to life change. Now I want us to consider this. I want us to consider the, the heart disposition of a Christian confronted with the truth of Scripture. And what I mean by that is I, I want to, if, if we're going to, and I hope you will, Take seriously this call from Scripture to make disciples and also then be discipled. This is, we're about to talk about the heart that we should have, the approach that we should have to being discipled, right? Apollos was taken aside and discipled, and he took what Aquila and Priscilla had to say to heart. He didn't just bounce off of him, he accepted it. Now, no doubt, right, and this is huge to remember, don't ever believe anything that I or anyone else in this church or any church tells you just because it sounded good or just because they were passionate about it, right? In the words of Charles Spurgeon, sincerity doesn't matter, right? He says, if a man drinks poison sincerely, then he will still sincerely die, right? So, like, 
Don't just believe something because the person's zealous or sincere or because it sounds so good. Believe it because it's in the Bible. Right? If Apollos is mighty in the scripture, no doubt whatever Aquila and Priscilla said to him, he checked it against the Bible. Does Isaiah really talk about a suffering servant? Does Isaiah really talk about someone, the Messiah, dying in the place of God's people and suffering his wrath and then being raised from the dead? Well, it does. Aquila and Priscilla, you were right. right? So for certain, he's, he's checking what they say with scripture. But then we see he submits to the truth. He submits to the truth. Consider the humility of Apollos in that. Right? Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. Apollos is from Alexandria. Apollos is like, he's been to seminary, right? <laughs> like, he, he has his doctorate in theology. He knows the scriptures better than Aquila and Priscilla, I would argue, they were tent makers. Like, that's just funny to me. Like, that's like someone from seminary and like a farmer. And the farmer's like, let me learn you something, brother. And like, and the dude from seminary's like, gotcha, man. I'm going to hear you out and check it against the scripture. And if it's right, I'm going to believe it. Apollos could have been really arrogant. He could have been really arrogant and thought, these people have nothing to teach me. I'm from Alexandria. I learned from Philo, if he did. I've learned from scholars. Who do they think they are? But he doesn't do that. Why? Because Apollos just wanted the truth. No matter who it came from, so long as it was biblical, he said, I want to know the truth about Jesus. I want to know what I should be saying. I want to know how I should live. I want to know everything that I can that accords with the Bible because I want to know God. Apollos just desired to know Jesus better. And he desired to understand more so that he would please God with his life. He didn't just want to know more for the sake of knowledge. The Apostle Paul says knowledge for the sake of knowledge just puffs people up and causes arrogance. He wanted to know so that his life could change for the better. That's the attitude of every true believer. That is the attitude of a true Christian. This is why doctrine matters. Because we, as believers, humble ourselves before the truth of God's word. This is what we do. Which, and actually, it's not like we don't worship the Bible, right? But God's word is an extension of who he is. Like if I make a promise to somebody, that's an extension of who I am as a person. Same thing for God's word. So whenever we bow down to the truth and humble ourselves before the truth of God's word, we're really humbling ourselves before God himself. We're not. And here's the thing. A true believer will humble themselves before God even if we don't like whatever that truth is. Even if we don't like it, Right? Even if that truth comes from someone that we feel is lower than ourselves. All right, and, and here's a story time for you. Uh, this is kind of funny. I'm not going to say this cat's name. He's not here. Um, there was a, a point in time uh, about two years ago uh, that I had a, a newer believer come to me. He was a baby Christian. Um, he was learning a lot, man. He was watching, he was watching Paul Washer. You know, not Paul Walker. Paul Washer, he is a, an awesome preacher. Um, just every time Paul Washer preaches, you go like, am I a Christian? Right? Like, he, he's like one of those guys. Like, he just, like, just makes you feel so convicted. It's so good. It's so much truth that this guy, and then he's gracious always at the end. Like, the first, like, 30 minutes of his sermon, you're just like, ah. Oh. Like, he's, like, stabbing you. Like, you feel like Caesar in Shakespeare's play. Um, literary joke? Anyone? Yeah, I heard some chuckles. Yeah. I will not explain myself. Um, <laughs> right? But, but this cat... Um, he's learning, and he, but he's a baby Christian, and I'm the pastor of Revolution Church, right? Like, that's something to be, like, super, like, beat your chest about. Be the pastor of any church, right? Dumb. Um, but, but, this, but this cat, 
um, he comes to me and says, hey, man, um, I'm not saying that you're wrong or anything, uh, but I, I, I do have a question. Uh, I was looking at your movie collection, and I, I see a lot of movies in there that are just vulgar. He's like, how, how does that line up that, like, you entertain yourself with things that Jesus Christ died for? Right? I'm not telling you you can't watch R-rated movies. I'm not saying that. That's not the point of this story. But he says, you, you find humor in the things that God hates. And he wasn't being a jerk, right? He's, like, being super humble about it. He's like, hey, man, like, maybe you know something that I don't. Right? He was like, but, but why? Like, how is that okay? Like, how do you justify that as a Christian? And uh, Dave got mad. Right? I, I love film, right? In, in particular, just to start this out there, it was The Wolf of Wall Street. So I guess maybe this was just like a year ago, maybe about two years, a year and a half, something around there. Yeah, it was The Wolf of Wall Street. I love Martin Scorsese. Think what you will of me. Um, but I did not like the call to holiness that this young, weaker brother was calling me to. He was telling me, you know, stop entertaining yourself with things that God hates. And I did not like it, especially because he was a new convert. But it was right! And it was biblical. And the Bible calls us to holiness. And that we ought not find pleasure in the things that God hates. And we, not, we ought not make light of sin. And he called me to the carpet on it. And it was right. And I repented. Right? I told him he was right, but not that day. Right? I was upset about it. For real. I was like, hey man... You need to mind your own business. Essentially, is what I told him. I was like, you need to study some more and mind your own business. And then, like, I talked to Stephen about it. And he was like, yeah, Dave, you're an idiot. And I was like, yeah, that's fair. Um, right? But what I'm getting at is Christians want truth. Christians want truth. And we humble ourselves in obedience and submission to the truth. That is a hallmark of a true believer. That is a clear identifier of someone who has been born again, who has received a new nature that desires Jesus. And that identifier is humility. Humility and obedience to God's word. Right? Just think about it this way. Right? Just to make that clear that it's not just some ethereal concept. Right? To be saved, what do we have to do? We're talking humility and submission are the hallmarks of a believer. Some of you see where I'm going with this. To be saved, we must first humble ourselves before the truths that the Bible teaches about our sin. That God hates it. That God punishes sin in hell. That God's wrath abides on those who sin. And everyone is a sinner. We have to accept those truths. And we don't like those truths. The Bible says you deserve to go to hell. You deserve to burn in hell for eternity. And God's wrath is on you. And there's nothing that you can actually do to make that go away. There's nothing in and of yourself you can do. But then we must submit to the truth and believe the truth that the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That Jesus bore our sin in his body and became sin, the one who knew no sin, so that through faith in him we could become righteous in God's eyes because he has paid the penalty for our sin in our place. We have to believe those truths, right? And in the moment, at least for me, in the moment that I was confronted with those truths, I did not like the truths, and I did not like the person telling me that truth either. But all believers submitted to that truth, did we not? Even if we didn't like it, we submitted to that. This kind of humility starts the Christian life, and then we continue for the rest of our lives to humble ourselves before truth. In Scripture, that is discipleship. Constant submission, constant repentance, constant humility before God. And I'll lay this before you too, because I know a lot of people think that they're Christians, um, and this isn't coming from a place of spite or anger. Um, it is, it is irritating because there are a lot of preachers don't talk about this enough. A lot of Christians are ignorant because their preachers aren't teaching sound doctrine. 
That's this. If we won't bow down to Scripture's authority, then we prove that we don't know God. Right? 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7 says, So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. This is rebelling against God's Word. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There are a lot of people that think that they're Christians and they live their whole life in complete disobedience to the Word of God. They're not a Christian. They they walk in darkness. They're unrepentant about their sin. They could care less about what the Bible says. They form their own opinions about who God is and what He thinks and what's right and what's wrong. And Scripture says if you go on living in spiritual darkness, you are lying about having fellowship with God. So this is one of the ways that we can know we're actually Christians. Are we constantly submitting to Scripture? And just a side note, how gracious is God to give us the Bible? Aside from Christ crucified, this is the most precious gift He's ever given us, that He would give us His written Word, that we could know Him. Right? The natural world around us, to paraphrase John Calvin, will not give us enough information about God to lead us to Him and lead into a saving knowledge of Him. But it takes the written Word passed down from generation to generation that God has said, this is who I am. How gracious is He to give us that, that we wouldn't wander around in darkness, bumping against stuff saying, is this God? But He would give us a light to say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is how you can know me. How gracious is He to do that? And then as an added grace, He gives us each other to push us on in faithfulness to that Word that He's revealed Himself in. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace given to us. But Apollos was discipled. I'm going to wrap this up. Apollos was discipled and he grew. And he preached boldly. And he preached accurately. And he preached the fullness of the gospel. And then he was sent to Corinth. That's Achaia. He was sent to Corinth. And in Corinth, Apollos, he helped and taught the believers there. In verse 27, right, that we read in, that, in Acts 18, 27, it says that he encouraged them. He was a great, great aid to the Corinthian believers. And this tells us something, that when we grow as disciples, when we push one another on into obedience, the body of Christ flourishes. And why is that? Because disciples make disciples. We're discipled, so we go out and help because we have been helped. And on and on and on it goes, pushing each other into further and further obedience to Jesus. So Apollos was equipped for service because two believers, by the grace of God, loved the Scriptures and loved God's people. And Apollos, by the grace of God, humbled himself and learned to obey. Apollos helped others because he was helped first. And all of that was sparked by a thirst for truth born out of a love for God. And the, true, the church grew because of it. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious beyond measure. We deserve hell and you give us Christ crucified. And then we don't deserve to know your truth. We don't deserve to know light. And yet you give us grace upon grace. You give us the scriptures. You give us one another. You give us the church. You give us faithful men and women to teach your word, to study your word. God, we live in America where you give us resources that we can study the greatest Christian minds who have ever lived, that they can help uh, be aids in our discipleship. Father, I pray that we would take advantage of your word, that we would never be content with our knowledge, 
but that it also wouldn't just be raw knowledge, that this would be doctrine that changes our heart. Because theology that doesn't lead us into a greater love for you is just dead words. Father, I pray that people here would take discipleship seriously, that they would submit to your word, that they would seek out discipleship, that they would begin to disciple others. God, give us hearts that you gave Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and do it all for your glory, the salvation of sinners and the edification of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.